Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. On this week's episode, my guest is sociologist Peter Millward of Durham University. We are discussing his book, The Global Football League, Transnational Networks, Social Movements, and Sport in the New Media Age, published in 2011 by Paul Grave Macmillan as part of their series, Global Culture and Sport. The English Premier League is in the midst of its 20th season. Since its founding in 1992, the EPL has become not only the biggest money-making league in European football, but also one of the most popular and most valuable brands in all of global sports. But the success of the EPL has not come without turmoil, nor without dissent. Many fans, who see themselves as die-hard followers of the league's clubs, have responded angrily to rising ticket prices, the arrival of phony, affluent fans, and the apparent threat of foreign owners. As Pete explains in his book and our interview, The changes in the EPL have led supporters of some clubs to organize protest movements and even to form breakaway teams that, in their view, preserve the traditions of English football. In last week's episode of the podcast, philosopher Stephen Mumford described how sports fans actually feel themselves to be a part of the clubs they support. This week, a sociologist gives us proof of this. The fans that Pete researched didn't see their team as an external object of allegiance. Instead, they saw themselves as the club. And in the case studies he discusses, some supporters come to the determination that they, and not the players on the field or the management, were the true representatives of the team's character. This is a book about sports fans about the local supporters who grow up with a club and how they then respond when that club becomes a global brand with millions of consumers. Pete writes with the careful attention of a scholar and the sensibility of a fan. In the interest of scholarly self-disclosure, we start the interview by clarifying just where Pete's fan allegiance lies. Oh, well, I I follow a a small team called Wigan Athletic, a proud follower of many years, a season ticket holder, and one of the few bums on seats you might actually see there if if you get the highlights over in the States. So were you then, were you drawn to uh, study sociology by by your interest in football? No, no. um, I studied sociology as an undergraduate, then as a postgraduate, and then... As I was um, beginning my PhD, 
my PhD was in, was was around issues around Europeanization, okay. cultural identities, Europeanization, xenophobia, racism, and I just thought that that football and sport was a really good prism through which I could actually view these these issues. And so it proved my PhD was on the Europeanization of English football and how that finds resonance in fan attitudes and fan cultures too. So football has provided a, a rich supply of subjects for you. You've published re- research on on a range of topics related to football. I think so. I think so, yes. Um, ranging from fan cultures, fan attitudes, hooliganism, uh, institutional structures, um, financial issues, a number of issues, I think, yeah. So your current book that we're talking about, The Global Football League, is about specifically the English Premier League. And in uh, picking up on the definite article in the title, I'll ask you, what makes the EPL the Global Football League in comparison to other European leagues? Well, underscoring all of this, I think, is actually the, the media coverage that the English Premier League receives and how that is larger than, than any of its comparator leagues. And really, its comparator football leagues are the other big four European leagues, so in France, in Germany, in Italy and in Spain. And, um, I mean, to give you an example, the English Premier League, I think, is broadcast to 211 countries across the world, which which outranks any of the others. So I think that's the underscoring point that makes it really the, the global football league. And connected to this, of course, with these... Um, uh, with with such television interest, there are television revenues which 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 promote interest from fans, interest from prospective investors, uh, provides provides revenues which um, which attract players from across the world, and all of these added together, I think, makes makes the English Premier League more so than any of its other comparators, the global football league. So your book begins with with the formation of the Premier League twenty years ago. Um, so can you, can you tell us how the Premier League began and how can its origins be viewed in this larger context of, of globalization? Yeah, well, the Premier League really began, I suppose, out of a need to, um, to rebrand football in England. I mean, from, um, from many, many years, there's been a, a gradual decline in, in live match attendances. Going all the that decline was slightly reversed for a couple of years around 1966, where, where England won the World Cup. But but that but the decline was relatively steep through um, all the way through the from the post-war years through to about 1990. So there was a need there was a need to rebrand football, to repackage it, to 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 make it look appealing to new fans. I think England's success relative success getting to the semi-finals of, of the 1990 World Cup showed many of those directors within football that there was a thirst there amongst amongst uh, supporters to watch football. It was it was widely viewed. It was it was a success. Um, and so I think I think that just really kind of drove home that point. And from there what the what the, the, the new directors, the directors at that time sought to do was to try monetize a potential new fan base and a way of doing this was was through establishing the new Premier League or the Premiership as it was then um, and and screening that on television Sky played a huge part Sky came along and Sky Sky became real um, I guess what we could call marketing partners for the Premier League 
So were these directors from the start were they were they aiming for a global audience or uh, or bringing back English fans to the game? No, they were just they were just aiming for an increased audience mm-hmm. at the first level. It was it was um, English fans, British fans, um, and pockets of overseas fans which are long standing in Ireland, in, in Scandinavia, etc., etc. Um, it was really aimed at those. But you know, I'm a sociologist, and one of the kind of one of the kind of Marxist ideas is that is that actually the market will always find its most lucrative space, its most lucrative level, and actually through the huge success domestically in promoting the Premier League and tapping into these new markets, actually from about 10, 12 years ago, um, with the appointment of Richard Scudamore, actually many of the directors in the Premier League decided that. That, that the market could be much larger, could be global. So that kind of grew in the in the ten years after the start of the Premier League and the and the, the ten or twelve years that we've since had. You include an interesting piece of evidence at the start in the in the chapter when you discuss the the EPL's uh, beginnings, and uh, that's about the the financial success or the financial standing of, of English clubs in the early 1990s. And, and you, you have a statement in the book that the largest club in Britain in 1992 in terms of revenue was Rangers, which yes. was twice the size financially of Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, and yet Rangers' revenue was only a tenth of that of Milan. And, yeah. and when I read that, that is stunning to be reminded that that really the EPL began out of a, a position of weakness. Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, I think I borrowed that evidence from from uh, Rogan Taylor's book, um, which was published in '95, uh, but really set around that sort of era. But yeah, it, it did. It was a. I mean, you've got to think of the position of of English football in the late '80s and early '90s, where it was where it was. Declining match attendances. It was it was popularly parallel to hooliganism. It really wasn't a, it really wasn't a very socially desirable um, um, use of leisure time, if you like. Mm-hmm. So it did. It began with that position of, of of weakness and grew from there. I mean, what Rogan Taylor says in, in in that particular quote you refer to is now a million miles away from where we are at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. So you also talk about the the clubs of the Premier League as as brands, brands yeah. that have global customers, and yeah. uh, so in light of the the club's meager revenues in the early nineteen nineties, how is it that they became global brands? Well, it's a gradual, it's an incremental growth, isn't it? Uh, there there are gradual steps along the way. I think I think Manchester United winning the um, European Cup Winners Cup in the early nineties was a was a first step whereby whereby Manchester United and English football was repackaged and regrown on the on the European level. I think Chelsea signing Rude Hullet in the mid nineties was a was a massive step. Rude Hullet, the the Dutch player who'd, who was probably best known for playing for AC Milan. I think from there you get you get other overseas players following Hullet into the English league. Increasingly, more and more of the higher profile players. Um, so there's an interest from players. I think I think connected to that, you've got the tapping into uh, more and, and bigger overseas markets of fans. I think you've got 
another massive step around the largest clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United beginning to tour um, the, the lucrative um, East Asian markets. I think there are I think there are various steps to where we get to now. I think there are multiple steps, and these steps have been fairly incremental. So at the at the close of that chapter on the origins of the EPL, you you make a statement that I found. Um, I don't know. I found it contradictory. So, so let me read the statement, then I'll ask you about it. You wrote, quote, The EPL is globally sold and therefore exists in a transnational space because of its tradition and local environment. It is nothing more than its clubs, which are textured in their regional cultures, and without this, the product would be would not be sold. So can you expand on this please? How is it that the global draw of Premier League teams is based upon their local fan base and traditions? Well, locality and history and the way in which history and locality are, are bound together in this instance provides stories upon which Premier League clubs can be sold upon. So Sky can build these stories. Other broadcasters across the world can can show and, and 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 illustrate these stories. These stories are based around locality, the clubs being important, the history, the 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 authenticity. Um, they're they're based around these stories. They provide a rich source of detail. Also added to this in the in the in the very contemporary era. There's something about place which is important in the selling of games to overseas markets too. The team I support, Wigan Athletic, would be far less appealing to to many of the overseas broadcasters and the Liverpools and Manchester Uniteds of this world because the spectacle doesn't look as big. And it doesn't look as big because there are fewer people in the stadium. Mm -hmm. That sort of locality based around... Um, um, fans in the stadium is really important for this telling of the story too. So I think, crucially, I think these clubs do belong in this transnational space, which is about money, about players, about about overseas television markets, about overseas investment, about overseas profile. But that is crucially connected to to, to the locality of the clubs too. So it's not so much the attraction is not so much the uh, uh, the quality of the football as much it is the the narrative that surrounds the clubs? I think so. I think that's right. I think it's really about the way in which the story, the excitement gets sold rather than actually often quite mundane football matches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned that that Wigan would not uh, really draw as a global brand in the same way of, of Liverpool and Arsenal and Manchester United because... Uh, they don't have the crowds uh, at, at matches. Um, but but what about other clubs that have larger grounds? Say, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, say Sunderland or, or West Ham. Why is it that they have not translated their traditions and their local fan support uh, into becoming global brands? It's a good question. Um, I think there's something to do with success too. Mm -hmm. um, fans want to follow successful teams. That happens on local, on national, on international scales. So teams that um, had been successful in the past, you mean then? Successful, successful in the past is part of the story. Yeah. But recent success is re successes in the age of the Premier League really important too. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, of course, you know, the Sunderlands and, and West Ham's and Aston Villas of this world have, have proud histories, histories of winning some trophies, um, you know, probably, well, certainly less so than, than, than Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal. But crucially, in the gaze of these of this global media, they've been far less successful. It's interesting that you talk about Sunderland as well, because Niall Quinn, who's, um, as you, as you may know, a former player at Sunderland actually was, was, was the team manager for a couple of games as well, but most recently was chairman of the club has been moved from that role into, um, overseas operations director. I think his new title is, and his job is really to try and promote Sunderland as a global brand, use his name, use his kudos as, as that. Um, but, but to, to return to the question most, most carefully, I think it's about how clubs are successful in the era of the Premier League, in the era of, of, of this media spotlight. So what influence did the Champions League have in the, in the global branding of Premier League clubs? Well, the Champions League took that development that was going on nationally with the, with, the, with the Premier League, the rise of the Premier League, onto a European scale and what it really did was provide, I suppose you could say, certainly in the, in the later parts of the tournament, um, the equivalent of that sort of interest that would build with the 39th game in that you have super clubs, you know, European global super clubs who would frequently play each other. The rise of the Premier League really reduced the chances of Nottingham Forest and Malmo getting to the yeah. final again. Uh, and, and increase the chances of the final being held between two of the uh, the, the seeded bigger clubs, um, Manchester United and and Barcelona, for instance. And so, what 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 the Champions League did through its structure, allowing multiple teams from the top leagues to qualify, but also through its structures around being a league whereby one-off results were less important. Certainly, a league in the early stages of the tournament where one-off one -off results were less important, increased the chances of the best teams going further. So it promoted them further on a European scale, on a global scale. So with the global marketing or the, the, the new marketing of the Premier League, uh, this has brought a change in the match day experience. Clubs have installed luxury boxes, theater seats, big screens at the grounds. And there's been a process of what you call in the book uh, sanitization of uh, of the football experience. So, can you explain what that involves? Yeah, I mean, this really refers to um, some of the more traditional fans and their views around this. I mean, these traditional fans, the fans that are local to the club, the fans that their type of fan continue to go throughout the the leaner periods of, of English football's history. They have this belief that they, like all fans actually in this case, but they have this belief that they culturally own the football club. The football club is theirs. Um, and they go along to the football club, not just not just to see a team win, although that is really quite important, but they go along to the games to uh, to talk with friends, to hang out with family, to be part of to be part of an experience, a kind of working class weekend experience. And they argue that that with the changes to the Premier League, and it's not just through 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 Sky and through through television coverage, but through this increased marketization, trying to extract ever increasing profits from fans, fans as customers. Um, they believe that they believe that 
that that the clubs have be, become um, more interested in those supporters who have perhaps higher levels of disposable income who will pay higher prices for, for tickets. And so um, they believe that, that the club market their policies toward those fans, which they believe has sanitized the match day experience. So how do these, these traditional fans, uh, what criteria do they use to mark themselves as authentic fans from these uh, more affluent, as, as they call them, the Johnny-come-latelys? Well, the criteria are really what we might call elastic cultural boundaries. You know, mm. these, these criteria kind of exclude groups as well as including. And you have to really be part of the group to fully understand. But it's things like when it's appropriate to sing, what, what songs can be sung, the way they dress, the way they behave. And these fans can recognize each other. You know, these are, you know, communities bigger than, than, than actually knowing each other. They're, they're somewhat imagined. But they do recognize each other and, and know that they're just part of the group by the way in which they present themselves. So it, it, I was surprised to see that geography plays a large part in, in distinguishing who the authentic fan is, correct? That uh, uh, the, the fan who remains in, in, in Manchester, in Liverpool, is regarded as more authentic than uh, the fan coming up from London, correct? Of course, yeah. C- certainly imagined, um, imagined geographies. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, there's... There's a really interesting debate that goes on on lots of the websites amongst the Liverpool fans about what it means to be a real scouser, scouser mm-hmm. of people from Liverpool, mm-hmm. as opposed to a wool. I would be a wool mm-hmm. um, in that wolves are those people who are from the towns that are in between Liverpool and Manchester. Um, and it comes from, from the term that they give, woolly back, which refers to um, living out with with the sheep, I think. I think that's why it means. I'm not sure. But the debate is to be a real scouser, you must have a purple bin. Now, bins, the, the wheelie bins, the bins, the, the, the garbage collections, uh, are organised by the local council. And Liverpool City Council give out, give out purple bins. So you must have a purple bin to be a real scouser. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's interesting cultural politics, actually. But it's not the lines are not necessarily drawn uh, according to according to wealth, correct? Because uh, um, I, I was surprised when you talk about the the opposition groups that emerge uh, in Liverpool uh, to yeah. foreign ownership of the club. There are are people in these opposition groups who consider themselves to be true Liverpool fans who uh, have pretty good jobs that pay pretty well. That's right. These opposition groups. I mean. Like any, like most um, new social movements, um, they're organised by those who are stoically middle class. But class money isn't, it's, it's embroiled within this complex mix, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, geography is really important, but, but, but just abiding by these traditional cultures, which were once very working class, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is the key, actually. Um, Masculine cultures are also important, masculinity. So I think we've got geography, we've got something of class, and we've got something of masculinity there. It's this kind of complex mix. It's not redu- It's not automatically reducible to one or the other. Yeah, yeah. So in thinking as you're talking about it, is there, can you see a common denominator? Between? 
with with all of these different factors, all of these different criteria, do you see something at at the base? Is it a is it this shared nostalgia? Is it a longing for community? What is it that uh, brings all these factors together in in the drawing of lines? Between... Oh, it's both. It's both of those. It's oh. both a longing for community. It's a and it's a nostalgia for the way football used to be, mm-hmm. or the way they believed football used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, many of these supporters actually believe that in the past the football club was completely reducible to the fans that the chairman once supported uh, fan interest, that the players were part of these communities. Actually, historic, history and historical sources dispute this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but there's a longing for community and a nostalgia. And to be part of this group, what, you, what supporters have to do is really assimilate and take on board these values around what it means to be a real fan and a real fan is one of these traditional fans in the eyes of the traditional fans themselves. So does this longing for community outweigh the longing for wins and for uh, success in the league table? I, as I was reading about these these disgruntled fans, I was thinking, you know, does anybody did anybody on the fan sites step forward and say, you know, I, I don't like these affluent fans. I don't like these foreign owners, but I like that we win. I like that we, we bring in the top players from around the world. I like that we uh, are in the chase for the league title and for cups every year. I like that we compete in the Champions League every year. And, and frankly, if, if not for these changes with, with the fan base, uh, with the ownership, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that. Does or does the the instinct for community outweigh this? Um, well, like, again, pride the answer, and success. Well, the answer to this is is fairly complex too. I think in that we're seeing the the makings of exactly what you talk about at Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Manchester City, a club where well well twelve years ago. They were in the third tier after, you know, they're, they're a club who have spent almost all the history in the top division. Mm-hmm. But 10 years ago, they were in the third the third tier down and and they've been promoted back up. They hadn't won a cup in, in God knows how many years up until last season. And their fans are exactly as you talk about at this moment in time. And I think that thirst for success is really very important. And I think it probably would have been Oh, so important that Manchester United too. Uh, well, it, it would have been in the in the early nineties when they too were, were, were success starved. But actually, after twenty years or so of, of success, that then becomes normalised mm-hmm. because it becomes normalised and taken for granted. Then there's a longing for more, and more in this case is 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 a sense of ownership over a club okay so a, a longing for more in a sense of something other than other than success in the table and champions league and so forth that's right yeah okay yeah i mean success success is important but ownership of a club is important but as i say 20 years ago those values might have been a little different okay can I follow up on that? And I'll ask you a question that that's directed more to you as a as a football fan than as a sociologist. As I was okay. re- as I was reading about this opposition among among Manchester United fans, I was thinking, come on, you're you're Manchester United fans. You're you know in the in the in the context of American sports, it would be like Yankees fans or 
L.A. Lakers fans whining because their clubs are are too rich and successful. Did you ever did you ever just kind of get frustrated with the uh, with the complaints and the whining of these these United fans? No, I kind of understand it. Yeah, it's I kind of understand it on on one level. Um, I mean, they're just so used to being successful, and it's not actually being successful is always important to them. Being rich, the club being rich is is quite interesting and quite quite important too, and and it's quite contradictory the relationship with the club's wealth because on the one hand they're really oh so so proud that 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 the club tops these wealth tables you know the Deloitte rich list of football clubs Manchester United are always in the the top two or three and they're quite proud of that it's something to use as a as a one-up as a as a way of kind of beating the rivals of Liverpool or, or Manchester City our club's richer than yours um that type of thing but at the same time, at the same time, they feel that that they've gradually been dislocated from what the club is. Yeah. That the club, that increasingly, increasingly, they have been charged higher and higher ticket prices. As a result of this, their type of fans, the fans that the fan groups that they belong to, have stopped attending. People don't sing. I so I mean, it's really complex. I I agree with what you're saying on one level. But I can also see their point from from on the other hand too. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask it to you personally. So, as a as a Wigan fan, in in looking at what would what, I do? Yeah, looking at do you look at at envy at say Manchester City, where you have this this rich owner coming in, is going to spend loads of money to to make a top club, or do you think no thanks? I don't. I'm I'm happy with with what I have. Well, the history of Wigan Athletic is that. Um, they only came into the football league in 1978, mm-hmm. and up until 2003, they'd never been out of the bottom two divisions. So, in many cases, in many ways, many of the lower divisions fans would see Wigan Athletic as the successful model of the small club. Yeah, I've been spoiled. So, but life in the Premier League as a Wigan Athletic fan is sometimes boring. It's sometimes dull. We show up. We're playing Manchester City at home on Monday night. I hope um, Roberto Martinez isn't listening to this, our manager. But we're going to lose. We know we're going to lose. We show up to games and we know we're going to lose. And that can be quite dull at times. When the team know they're going to lose, the fans know they're going to lose, we don't stand a chance of winning. Um, that can be quite dull. But, but that is... That is to even be in the Premier League and to have been there for seven years is a huge amount of success for a club of our size. Mm-hmm. You know, clubs about the same size of Wigan Athletic are in the bottom two divisions. They would see be, just being there as success, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. But that's become being in the Premier League has normalised for us now. And it can be dull, it can be rubbish. Mm-hmm. If you were to offer me the chance of um, Manchester City's owners buying, selling Manchester City and buying Wigan Athletic and bringing players like like uh, Tevez and Aguera and Balotelli and these type of players to Wigan Athletic, even though they get paid extortionate sums of money, I would say, yes, let's have it. I'll take that easy. <laughs> but then if we had 20 years of that success... That would probably then become normalised, yeah, and I'd, yeah. want, I'd want players who were successful and a bit more like me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, so bringing this in a new direction, so it's actually more appealing, more engaging for the for the fan to to go up and down in the table rather than to be always near the bottom or always near the top. Well, no fan would ever take a rubbish season, a rubbish season of finishing lower than where they would expect. No fan would ever take that. But actually, when you look over a period of time, perhaps that's what gives the fan the enjoyment. That's why they enjoy successes, because they've had hard times too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to ask about overseas fans of of the big clubs, of of Manchester United, Liverpool. Um, So do those people who consider themselves authentic fans, do they object to the the boom of overseas supporters for their teams? Do they see fans in Asia or Africa as, as something good? as a nuisance, as a threat? How do, they, how do they view overseas fans? It's a mixture. It's a mixture. Um, those local fans, those traditional fans, um, don't have a problem as long as the overseas supporters see the local fans, the traditional fans, as the real fans and aspire to be like them in their fan practices. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Um, so there's a there's a there's a dimension of assimilation there. In the book, I talk about or I give evidence of um, SOS Spirit of Shankly, the Liverpool fan group, and how they embrace. I think it's the New York um, Liverpool um, Liverpool Football Supporters Club. As long as they assimilate to their codes of practice of what a real supporter is and look to learn from them. So on that on that level, on that level, it's about learning it's about respecting the traditions of what they see as the club but is that but actually these the traditions of the club are really the traditions of the traditional fan base Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think they see overseas markets as being potentially problematic when and of course the overseas fans feed into this market but they see the markets as being potentially problematic when the impact of that overseas market takes the club away from that fan base further too. So, for instance, an example would be around um, inconsistent kickoff times. Mm-hmm. So, in, so in England, um, um, the, traditional, the traditional kickoff uh, time, commencement time for a match would be 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon. And increasingly, to suit overseas markets, games have been shifted away from that slot and played at other times over the weekend. That causes some sort of resentment from from these traditional fans because they see that as not only inconvenient, um, but also symbolically a way in which the club has been taken from that local community too. So there's not there's not there's not an outright dislike of the overseas fan groups in any way, shape, or form. But it's about how the impact of that of of the overseas markets, the international markets, might 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 remove the club from them mm-hmm. and also how how the presence of such elements might might just distance the club from those traditional fans yeah yeah so with the new fans you do have a chapter on on fans in scandinavia mm-hmm. east asia and the united states uh do you find is is the group in new york that pays deference to yeah. liverpool fans is that common is that unusual how do how do overseas fans view themselves in relation to well, a, traditional a club fans? like a club like Liverpool, where probably most of the midfield work was was connected to for this book, 
a club like Liverpool, um, it's quite, it's relatively common. So, for instance, you get lots of Scandinavian fans who come over, and they um, and they want to be part of the real fan practices. And real is a code word again for these traditional fans. And so they they hang around with them. Uh, they they go to the same pubs. They look to talk to them. They defer to them. And so that's that's relatively common. With the rise of, of supporter groups like Spirit of Shankly, the Liverpool supporter group, that's that, and the rise of these and spread across the world, well, actually, the core values of, of those groups like Spirit of Shankly have been about the protection of these traditional fans and what they see to be the right thing for the club. So that deference has gone on through through those processes too. So it's relatively common, yes. So back then to the, the traditional fans, they would be more accepting of a, of, a, of a Swedish or an American fan who comes over, hangs out in the pub, um, sits with the traditional fans, you know, is trying to get the experience, trying to learn from, from the traditional fans as opposed to what a, uh, you know, someone who's working in finance in London who... Uh, who comes up and also tries to assimilate to the fan culture. So they'd be accepting of the American, not accepting of the of the affluent Londoner. Would that be Absolutely. correct? Okay. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, for instance, the Norwegian Liverpool fans are more readily accepted under those circumstances than the Wolves, as they call them, so people like me, mm-hmm. people, who, people who are from 30 miles away. Mm-hmm are less readily accepted than those who are from Norway in this case. But it's about perceptions of what this type of fan is like. So it's not even on an individual level. It's about a perception of the qualities that that sort of fan would have and how they may fit in with their with their existing practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, owners and the American owners of, of Liverpool and, and Manchester United. But, but first, to give some background... Uh, it seemed to me while reading the book that there's been a for a major sports league there's been a surprising amount of of flux in the ownership of premier league clubs why has that been the case that uh so many teams have have changed ownership changed owners i mean i think it's i think it's in part reflecting the growing international prestige of the league over the last number of years and because of that the international prestige, the revenues that clubs can generate, the amount of money that's been sloshing around international markets, um, the ease of, of borrowing money. Uh, I think there's attractive offer, offers put to existing owners or previous owners, and they've sold, you know, to these to the owners before the, before uh, English football truly went into this overseas international space. I think, um, you know, these were still businessmen, business people, an attractive offer gets put to them, they sell the club. Mm-hmm. So let's look at uh, Manchester United and, and Liverpool and their, their American owners. Can you talk about uh, these new owners and what was the initial fan reaction with these two clubs to uh, the purchase? Quite contrasting, quite contrasting between the two case mm-hmm. studies. At Liverpool, well, I'll start with Man United, Manchester United because that happened first. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Glazers have been gradually buying into into Man United for about two or three years before they actually purchased the majority share of the club in, in May 2005. And in May 2005, there was immense hostility towards the the 
the uh, the Glazer family, and that hostility hasn't hasn't really ebbed away. And the fears were there around the renaming of the stadium, the the possibility of um, um, selling top players uh, frequently, um, but also around placing the club into debt, leveraging the the purchase debt, uh, the purchase price back onto the club. And um, some of those fears have been realised. Some of them haven't actually. So there was so there was a huge amount of fear and hostility at that point at Manchester United and and the fan groups separated some of them went off and formed a club themselves FC United of Manchester a non-league football club which is owned by the fans which has players paying who who play for them for for only a small fee um so the players continue to belong to the same communities as the fans um um some of them some of them agreed that they would, what they call, fight from within the club, so continue to support but, but form certain forms of protest from within the group. And other fans, you know, gave it a let's suck it and see. They weren't too bothered at that moment in time. At Liverpool, the example is 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 rather different. At the point at which um, Hicks and Gillette bought the club in 2007, the fans opened them quite readily uh, were open to them they were they were they welcomed them quite readily they were really pleased that they were there and they were really pleased that they were there because they believed that the new owners would bring investment in the team and then within a few years they would be ready to win the, the premier league again that changed about a year afterwards um um february 2008 there was the start of the first fan projects that were in opposition to that and that was gradually through the ideas that they, like Manchester United, had 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 the the purchase price of the club leveraged back upon them. That actually much of this team investment wasn't happening as much as they would have hoped, and and that that the two owners weren't 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 prepared to finance that. So there were differing views between the two clubs. So how um, how large were these opposition groups within the the broader fan communities? Okay, at Manchester United, um, FC United launched, and it launched through um, a public meeting in Manchester on the edge of Manchester City Centre, which had um, which had several hundred people there. They they formed many of those formed FC United, this this um, supporter run football club, and they received. They received about 5,000 people per game for the first season. So 5,000 people who were joining together, in part, in part to protest against against the Glazer ownership, in part to enjoy a kind of re-energized fan experience of being able to chant when they wanted, paying relatively smaller fees to get into the stadiums. A re-energization of that experience. Um, that's, that attendance has since dropped off to about 2,000 now. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fight from within Manchester United um, 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 protest was was harder to track in terms of numbers, but again was probably more restricted to um, was probably more restricted to I would suggest the small thousands again mm-hmm. within this. The majority of the fan base were fairly apathetic. At that moment in time, however, at Manchester United in 2010, January 2010, uh, the idea was launched to to 
to wear green and gold scarves to games. You may have seen this in the coverage, mm -hmm. but green and gold scarves, which were there to signify Newton Heath, the original name for Manchester United, and their and their um, original playing colours. Um, and were there, well, fans were, were to wear these uh, games to show that they that they um, were opposed to to lots of what the Glazer ownership had brought to the club. And that's that's incredibly hard to quantify the number of fans who were involved in that in that type of protest. And it's also difficult to work out how many of these fans were doing this as a form of protest or a form of doing something that they thought looked quite good. Yeah. It was aesthetically appealing. It's really hard to work that out. But those numbers were far larger. Those numbers potentially ran into the small hundred thousands. Mm -hmm. At Liverpool, at Liverpool, we've got um, three forms of protest which emerged in 2008, one year after Hicks and Gillette bought the club. So we've got, as the first, we've got um, Share Liverpool, which was launched by Rogan Taylor, who's actually a, a sociologist of sport too, whose evidence we referred to early on in the interview where he spoke about Rangers being the biggest club in Britain. And he proposed an idea that I think it was 100,000 Liverpool fans could pay £5,000 each to buy Liverpool Football Club. Um, so that was premised on 100,000 people. Now, the, the actual numbers who pledged support for this, despite Rogan Taylor talking about the website going down with popular interest in the first few days, would be far, far, far fewer than that. Mm -hmm. Those numbers weren't released, um, but, but far fewer than that. At Spirit of Shankly, which was launched at, on more or less exactly the same night, um, um, at the very end of January 2008, Spirit of Shankly was launched in the back of a pub in Liverpool. So had 50, 100 people in the back room of a, of a public house. So small numbers, again, involved, involved there. I mean... The numbers of people who are enrolled as, as Spirit of Shankly members have continued to grow and are still growing now, actually. Spirit of Shankly, although at the moment they're happy with, with John Henry and the new ownership at Liverpool Football Club, have continued to campaign for various other things, such as the establishment of a supporters committee who have a, who have a say in, in, in the major decisions involved with the club. So that's grown gradually, but it's still we're still talking about small thousands of people involved rather than hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. um, um, and the third form of protest was much like FC United, a non-league football club which Liverpool supporters set up, and this is AFC Liverpool, and that attract and that club attracted far far fewer than FC United did, mm -hmm. uh, and so and so the numbers there are quite small too. So I guess if you're asking me, percentage-wise, in terms of how many fans of Liverpool, what percentage of, of, of Liverpool or Manchester United fans took part in these protests, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I would say that it was a minority. Yeah. So could you, can you see any, any change in decision-making at the top level where the, uh, uh, the directors realized we've got this opposition movement on our hands. We need to take some steps to, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think they were making demands, but, but at least to placate uh, these dissidents in our fan base. Um, not really at Manchester United. At Liverpool, 
not really under Hicks and Gillette, but once the club was bought by um, John Henry and New England Sports Ventures, um, New England Sports Ventures were, I think, quite clever in incorporating what was the resistance into their decision-making processes, or at least, or at least, giving the the perception that they were becoming part of the decision-making process. So what I mean by this is, as a result of the fan movements, John Henry established a Liverpool um, supporters committee, where 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 supporters would be represented by by well by a few representatives on a board who would discuss major decisions, and these would feed into future decision making uh, processes at Liverpool Football Club. Whether this actually happens the way in which the way in which the fans hope and believe that they will be part of this decision-making process is there to, to be seen. We'll see what will happen in the future. Football, English football has a rich history of supporters. For instance, at Manchester City, this, this happened about 15, 20 years ago, whereby support, a supporter representative was invited onto the football club's board of directors. But actually, supporters, his job... His job was less to represent the fans' opinion, but but to feed back to fans in a positive way what the club's directors were actually doing. And we'll see whether whether the the supporters' committee differs from that or really just bows along with this kind of perception that the fans are are actually making a difference. Mm-hmm. So we've we've already talked a, a bit about Manchester City, but I'll ask you about. Uh... Uh, fan reaction or reaction among supporters uh, of that club to uh, the ownership by by first uh, Toxin Shinawat, the the former Thai Prime Minister, and now uh, Sheikh Masur uh, of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, so, how did fans of Manchester City respond to foreign ownership of their club? Well, Taksin Shinawatra, we'll talk around that example first of all. Taksin Shinawatra was greeted with. A warm welcome, let's say. Some people gave him... Some people were less welcoming than others, but generally there was no there was no widespread resistance. They were quite happy because, again, they thought that, that Shinoatra, despite the numerous allegations connected to his politics that, that were out there, they believed that he would invest in the team and improve them. And he probably did. The team, the team were probably better at the end. And to those fans, they spoke around. I think one of the pieces of evidence talks about um, football crimes, as if they're, you know, as if as if that should be different from 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 crimes against humanity, as would be alleged. So, so, so these fans were generally quite warm towards Shinoatra. Um, Sheikh Mansur, well, when he bought the club, there was. The day he bought the club, or the day he agreed to buy the club, Manchester City went into the transfer market and bought Rubinho for, I think, £32 million, a huge sum of money. And it signalled his intent to go and purchase top-quality players and improve Manchester City, give them a chance of winning, winning leagues, winning tournaments, and crucially also beating Manchester United. And so he was universally welcomed by supporters. And that universal universal welcome and acceptance of him, if anything, has grown in the in the years and months since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So we're almost out of time, Pete, and uh, I want to ask a question that that gets away gets away from the book. Uh, it's it's deals with with an episode this season in the Premier League, and uh, that is the the situation surrounding Luis Suarez at at Liverpool. And uh, so to uh, give the background of the scenario for for people who are not familiar with it, so. Uh, Liverpool is a club owned by an American, John Henry, who's also the, the owner of the Boston Red Sox. Uh, the squad has at least 13 players who come from outside the UK. And uh, this past October, one of these players, Luis Suarez of Uruguay, made racially abusive statements in a match with Manchester United to Patrice Evra, a French international who's originally from, from Senegal. And Suarez argued in his defense that the word he used when talking to Evra is not offensive in his native Uruguay. And the Liverpool club made a strong statement in criticizing the FA's decision to give Suarez an eight-game suspension. So you have an English club, an American owner, a Uruguayan player involved in an altercation with an African player. So what does the the Suarez episode uh, tell us about the English Premier League as the global football league. Well, you've said it. It's an example, isn't it? It's a huge example. Um, I think, I mean, I just find this this whole situation really difficult to, to thoroughly analyse. And we've got to be so careful with this. I mean, to me, this whole situation just seems really, really regrettable. And it seems to have just been really poorly handled Um first point I want to raise with it is that it was really horrible and unfriendly banter from both teams from both Evra the Manchester United player to Suarez and from Suarez to Evra I think Evra said something quite unpleasant about um, Suarez's mother I think and it's, it's horrible unfriendly banter and what Suarez said Suarez claims that, that, that the word he used um was quite playful in um, in Uruguay and in, and in Latin America. Well, I don't think he used it in a very playful way at all. <laughs> I mean, I think he was I think he was quite aware that this was a way of attacking the opponent. Ever verbally attacked Suarez too. Um, um, it wasn't meant to be nice, and I don't know the exact meaning of those N words in Latin America, but it wasn't meant to be be nice it wasn't meant to be good um i think i think another big big issue with this why it's really regrettable and difficult to analyze is i don't know whether you're aware of this but but the um but the is it an eight match ban yeah it's an eight match ban the eight match ban was announced shortly before christmas two or three days before christmas um and actually, the evidence upon which this decision was made was only released on the 31st of December. So we've got a week and a half in between there. And I think that lag just allowed so much speculation about what happened and what didn't happen to really rise to the fore. And it allowed Liverpool fans... Well, in between, Liverpool played my club, Wigan. And... Um, and, and um, the fans chanted in the Liverpool fans chanted in support of him. Uh, the players wore wore t-shirts supporting Suarez, and it just allowed this sort of this I without anybody knowing or seeing the evidence allowed 
a lot of conjecture to build. So I thought that was really bad too. And I just thought, I mean, I suppose my fourth point here is that I thought that Liverpool's handling of the situation was probably ill-advised and regrettable as well. And it was, I understand Dalglish wanted to support his player and I understand um, the fans wanting to give some support to Suarez, especially given when the evidence wasn't known at that point. But I think that Liverpool's almost Liverpool Football Club's denial that that this was wrong was was ill-advised. I think um, at that game against us, Suarez was roundly booed and racist, racist, racist was chanting at him. And afterwards, Kenny Dalglish claimed that the FA should, should charge Wigan Athletic for failing to control their fans. I don't understand that. I I couldn't possibly understand that. And um, I thought the handling of that was wrong. And I thought the the T-shirts were symbolically wrong. I thought, I understand the need for players to support their colleague, but I thought a far better thing for them to do, a far better T-shirt for them to, to have wore, might have been a kick racism out of football T-shirt with Suarez's name on the back, for instance. So they're the blending the two together. Um, I just think that, I just think that this, this situation is really regrettable and really unfortunate. And I think that, as a result, it's lifted the, the lid on racism to be viewed as acceptable um, by some moronic elements of the fan base. And um, on, social, on the social media, you've got, you've got an abuse of Evra, which has emerged where he's being called the N-word by, by opposing fans, which just isn't acceptable. And I spend a lot of time in the northwest of England and in Liverpool city centre. I'd seen some graffiti using the N-word cropping up over Christmas. And I just think the way in which this has all been handled has been really unfortunate. I think it's really difficult to analyse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let me ask about what do you think of, of Suarez's defence that uh, in in my cultural context, this word is fine. Um Whereas the FA saying, well, you're playing in England, and in our context, it's it's not fine. Can can uh, the Premier League, the Football Association, with with so many players coming into the league from from outside of the UK, from outside of Europe, uh, establish some uh, stated expectation? This is you're playing now in England. Uh, this is what's going to be expected of you. Well, I think I think um, youth programs in England have this sort of training, and there is talk that this training will be rolled out to players coming into coming into England and the UK from overseas. But but having having made those points, Suarez, and I don't want to I don't want to unnecessarily attack Suarez here. As I say, I think the situation is fairly complex. But Suarez had played in Holland for a number of years, mm-hmm. where the use of the N word is, you know, is 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 really undesirable there. Um, and Suarez didn't use the N word to be friendly to Everett. He used it as a form of attack. Perhaps he didn't realise just how bad that is in the UK. But still, he used it as a form of attack. It wasn't friendly banter. It was unfriendly banter at, at the most generous way we can view this. Mm-hmm. Um, he just shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have said it. And I, I think that's, that's the bottom line on this. Mm-hmm. So let me ask about John, John Henry's role in this. And, and this story, 
uh, I think unfortunately has has received no coverage in in the mainstream sports media in the states. Even though, okay. uh, if if something like this were to happen with with John Henry's American team, the Boston Red Sox, where a, a player on the Red Sox uses a uh, a racial slur and then uh, is is punished by Major League Baseball, but the club administration and the other Red Sox players make statements in support of the player and against the punishment set down by by the league there would be there would be fire and brimstone raining down on the Red Sox and and John Henry and yet uh what has his role been has he taken any role or or said anything in in the Suarez case in in England as far as I know John Henry has hasn't said anything on this John Henry has has remained quiet on this um and to be honest, that's probably the best thing he could have done. Mm-hmm. Give a give a dignified silence, and and I would suspect that John Henry doesn't feel sufficiently comfortable in his role um, at Liverpool and his acceptance by those fans to be able to come out and say something that might potentially potentially attack. The club's great icon and, and current coach Kenny Dalglish and his views, if they run counter to his, um, which you suggest that they, they might they might have done in the context of, of U.S. sports, or or Luis Suarez, who is currently the team's key player and probably a fifty million pound asset to Liverpool Football Club. Mm-hmm. So I guess he doesn't as either. For business reason, reasons, both connected to his ownership of the club and the contract of the team star player, which is probably worth fifty million pounds, he doesn't feel like he can risk that. So the Suarez case shows that uh, there is a never-ending supply of topics in researching the Premier League. So, so what are you working on now? Oh, blimey! Um, <laughs> well, actually. Um, Actually, I'm working with a team of, of European um, researchers to look at, at fan projects and fan engagement projects around um, the running of football clubs and whether this and this keys into, I suppose, the last point we spoke about, but whether whether these projects could potentially reduce or alter or reshape um, violence, abuse, and intolerance in in European football working with a team of Czech researchers. That's going very well. And other future research, which I'm, which I'm working on as well, is um, work around um, community projects in sports, so various community projects as a result of shortfalls of government spending, which is, which is the, a context which is happening in the UK at this moment in time. So there's plenty of research here. And then Monday night you're going to watch Wigan and, and Manchester City, correct? That's right, yeah. Bet your house on us winning that one. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Peter Millward about his book, The Global Football League, Transnational Networks, Social Movements, and Sport in the New Media Age, published in 2011 by Paul Grave Macmillan. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from biography to military history. 
If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can offer your comments and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening. And in case you're wondering, I should have taken Pete up on that bet. Wigan Athletic lost 1-0.